Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we're going to be talking about the European Central Bank raising rates in July. Aha! Which July? Which July? And what happened in August? Ladies and gentlemen, it's going to turn out that they've done this several times, including this July. And now we're going to wonder and ask whether or not what happened the last two times is going to happen again. Fool me once, fool me twice. Jeff. The essay in question is at Real Clear Markets, and it is titled, A European Rate Hike is the Global Economy's Kiss of Death. Perfect title, finally. They nailed it. They got the title, July 21st. Let me read a paragraph here. Very good. It's about the rate hike. And it's going to be a quote by an ECB top official. Here's what they are saying. Why are they raising rates right now in July? Quote, this decision was taken to prevent broadly based second round effects and to counteract the increasing upside risks to price stability over the medium term. I know we're talking about the ECB, but that's definitely not in English. You're going to have to translate what that means. I'll continue. Inflation rates have continued to rise significantly since the autumn of last year. They are expected to remain well above the level consistent with price stability for a more protracted period than previously thought. That makes a lot of sense, Jeff. Which July was this rate hike announcement made in? That economic assessment, and yes, it's it's chock full of econometric jargon and tech speak and all that other stuff. But basically what they were saying is, We were pretty confident about the way consumer prices were going last fall. Then we got surprised primarily by oil prices earlier, late last year into the the next year, the year that they're talking. And what happened was they're concerned that this rise in oil prices that they were seeing that they didn't prepare for could then create second round effects or second order effects where consumers and businesses become come to start to expect rising prices, and then alter their behavior in a way that only contributes more to unanchored inflation, which then leads to out of control. So the purpose this July in this particular rate hike was to, okay, yes, we can't do much about oil prices. It's kind of surprised us. Consumer prices have gone a lot farther than we thought they would, but we need to stop this thing before it gets out of control. We need to stop it before consumers and businesses alter their behavior Otherwise, it becomes entrenched. At least that's what they believe. It becomes entrenched. And then it's, it's much, much harder, much more difficult and much more painful to get under control down the road. But this was, you know, as much as it sounds like this is something the ECB printed just the other week, this is July of 2008. And was there a global financial crisis in the offing? <laughs> okay, that's a fair. <laughs> is that a rhetoric? I know. <laughs> that's, you know, but that's how absurd this is, right? I mean, a lot of our audience may not remember this. It's it's vivid. It's stamped in my memories. I know it is in yours, Emil, because we went through that. July 2008 was sort of a one of those periods in time that you remember forever because, yes, there was a global financial crisis. One of the oldest names in Wall Street had just gone down a couple months before. Bear Stearns. Bear Stearns. I know it's a dirty word today, but at the time, this was a well-respected, bold bracket, old boys club firm, and it was now gone. 
And yes, the Federal Reserve and all sorts of people were patting themselves on the back after merging Bear Stearns with J.P. Morgan and all that. And even the stock market had rebounded somewhat from the March lows and we're starting to move back higher. But, you know, there was all sorts of financial indications at the time that were screaming, this thing isn't over. We've got more deflation risk than inflation. And that hiking rates at this time isn't just wrong. It's completely wrong. It's 180 degrees wrong. We have more monetary deflation risks than in monetary yes. inflation risks. We have more economic deflation risks than economic inflation risks. Consumer price increases may go up or down. Who knows? We'll see. Okay, Jeff, a couple of points. I get three points. So one point is I was a bit cheeky here about was there a global financial crisis? But in all seriousness, this was the biggest monetary event since the Great Depression. It was in progress. And the people who have trained their entire lives to detect it didn't see it. That's important to be said. Okay. Number two, before we get to the discussion of why were they looking at oil, a central bank, instead of looking at monetary measures, and audience, that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of the article. We're going to be looking at monetary measures that were warning people, but they were looking at oil, which is not monetary. Before we get to that, Jeff, very quickly, that whole, I always have a problem with the idea, well, consumer prices are increases and they're being driven by oil. And that's going to domino several dominoes into a whole inflationary sort of new environment and expectations about the future are going to become unmoored. Are we, are they still living in the 1970s? Are they believe that there were, there are labor unions who are locking in wage increases. And do you agree it's so squishy? I don't see what the connection is between an oil price increase leading to a completely new paradigm. That's the issue. We're talking about the Volcker myth here is that you're exactly right, Emil. They don't know either. That's the thing. They are completely flying blind. I love Steve Van Meter's uh, of uh, his analogy of They've papered over the windshield of the car and they're trying to drive forward using only the rear view mirrors. That's kind of what they're doing here is that they can't say, I mean, inflation should be, it's, it's a little more complicated, but it really should be an incredibly simple, uh, simple thing. It should be, is there too much money or is there not too much money? And if there is too much money, take some of it away because that's what a central bank is supposed to be able to do. At least the modern central bank is, it's, it's, it's currently known and what everybody's told to think about. But that's not what they do. And going back to Volcker, and we've had this discussion on previous episodes, they have no idea about money. And so if you don't know anything about money, how do you know about the inflation in the real economy? You can't. And so what they've done in lieu of technical proficiency of any sort of understanding, workable understanding of the actual monetary system, they've kind of cobbled together this loose framework of correlations it's sort of kind of maybe if this happens, then maybe this will happen. And we're kind of guiding our policy by a bunch of, you know, modeled economic variables and thinking that, well, if oil prices go up, then maybe that'll have an effect on somebody's psychology and maybe they'll do something. Then that'll lead to another thing. And as you're shaking your head it just, because it is that ridiculous. It is so absurd. And not only is it absurd, it is completely different from the, the picture that they give to the general public. The general public believes the Fed, 
or the ECB or any of these people are actual central banks. They do money. When they don't, they do regressions. They do Monte Carlo simulations. They do all this other stuff, the ridiculous things that we're talking about, because they can't. They can't do anything else. And in one sense, you could understand why they're doing this, because if you have no chance of figuring out the monetary system, yet you're charged with figuring out maximum employment and low inflation, you got to find some other way to do it, including or even even if it leaves you to nothing more than these absurd ideas of expectations and psychology and all this other stuff. Oil prices might cause consumers to do things as if we're now all a bunch of trained psychiatrists. When the orange man was in the White House on the Council of Economic Advisors on the website, the very first two items mentioned that would explain the entire economy was a two-variable model, the unemployment rate and the stock market. And so, of course, people that don't like orange people, they would say G-A-W-D. <laughs> How ridiculous. But then look at these, these highly trained Ivy League technocrats. They're running on a one-variable model, Jeff, oil prices. What they should be looking at, what we're going to talk about for the rest of the show, dear audience, are economic monetary measures. They're central bank, money. Jeff, in this article, you talk about Eonia and MRO. Then you talk about short-term government debt yields. And again, MRO, monetary measures. The first one, Eonia and MRO, tell us what are both and tell us what was happening for a long time, four to five months. September 2007 to January 2008, blinking red light. Well, it starts out with, or it should start out uh, in any normal condition with hierarchy. And that's kind of what the ECB structure depends upon. The MRO is essentially what's called their midpoint. It's really their interest rate target for short-term money rates because it allows banks to essentially use the MRO as an alternative where if other money rates are less than the MRO, you can go to the ECB and get a better return, which then keeps other money rates in check, right? If you can get a, if you can get XYZ from the ECB, why would you get less in the marketplace? So the MRO is essentially the target that the ECB has. There's, there's a deposit rate underneath that, and there's something called the MLF over top of it, which is supposed to create a corridor for monetary policy for money rates to go. But really, it's about the MRO. And up until August 9th of 2007, everything worked hunky-dory. There might be a day or two, an occasion or two, where Eonia, which is the unsecured overnight rate, it's the euro-denominated euro equivalent to federal funds. There was a couple of days where Eonia might fall below MRO. I mean, money markets are dynamic and quirky. That's no big deal. But you could depend upon Eonia being slightly above the MRO and then other rates falling in line because everything worked as it was supposed to hierarchy, dealers doing their arbitraging, all that other stuff. But suddenly, August of 2009, it wasn't just or 2009, August 9th of 2007, it wasn't just a, a, a dollar breakdown or a euro dollar breakdown. It was a global banking, global money breakdown because it's all really the same thing. We saw Ionia go haywire. And over the next intermediate, or inter, intermediate period, Ionia, like federal funds, would often go below the MRO as federal funds would often go below the Federal Reserve's target rate. And what that was signaling wasn't what they thought it was. Um, and then, of course, later in the end of the year, toward the end of 2007 into 2008, Iona, Ionia, like federal funds, they both went well below their target rates. 
and stayed there for a prolonged period of time, which was suggesting something was really, really wrong. Not as is commonly understood, there is too much money. That's what they said it was signaling. There's too much money. Tell us what they believe that meant because they believe the earth is at the center of the solar system. The central bank is at the center of the monetary system and the universe revolves around it. They believe there was too much money, but what was it signaling? That's the funny thing about measured market interest rates. It's often, I mean, during normal times, you can look at it at a effective federal funds rate or Eonia and say, yeah, that's probably representative of the full condition or enough of the conditions in the marketplace that we can depend upon that signal. When things start to break down, unusual things start happening. For example, let's say, Emil, that you are a sort of riskier borrower. And I have, I'm a cash-rich party who I have, I, I'd like to lend unsecured or whatever. Um, it's a normal day like any other day. You and I have done business for a long time. So I'm going to give you the same rate that I always give you in Eonia because we've done business a long time, everything seems fine. And so the posted interest rate, it matches the market interest rate and everybody's happy, it looks great. But suddenly the system starts to break down. I start to get really nervous. I start to become uncertain. Yes, we've done business for a long time, but Amelia, I don't really know you, do I? I mean, you're sitting there in the Cayman Islands offshore. You can be do any number of things. I'm in a lair. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not so sure I want to lend, not even the same rate as yesterday, I'm not sure I want to lend to you at all because this is an unsecured market. We have no collateral. I have no recourse. I'm going to lose money. So instead of lending to you at even a higher rate, I'm not going to lend to you at all. I'm going to put all the cash at the ECB. Or if I don't want to do that, because that, that, that creates some issues too, we don't need to talk about here. I'm going to lend to the guy over there who is Google. And he's the safest company, corporation, financial bank, whatever. I'm going to lend to him at whatever rate he's going to pay me, which might even be less than the ECB rate because he's safe. He's liquid. I don't have to worry about him. So I'm going to lend my cash at a lower rate compared to what I would have gotten had I lent to you at a much higher rate. And what happens to the posted market rate? It goes down because of lower quality credits are being shut out of the marketplace. They are becoming more and more illiquid. They're becoming more and more desperate. They're becoming more and more illiquid. But the, but the actual market rate, the posted rate that we all see is misleading because it only applies to a narrower and narrower segment of the market who happen to be the better quality credits in the market. So if you see these unsecured rates or any real market rate that goes down like that during these periods of time, you shouldn't think, oh, there's way too much money. Central banks are doing a great job. I mean, that's a possibility. But by and large, if everything is on fire, you should probably say, yeah, this is probably the other thing. This is probably where the market is breaking down. And the posted interest rate, the market rate that we all see, is only applying to, to a smaller representative, too small representative sample. And the rest of the market that we can't measure, that we can't see, is all over the place. It's haywire. It's chaos. It's disorder. It's deflationary money. Yeah. And might, as you said, it might be a good signal, but it might not be. And you would think, and it's up to us as market participants to figure it out. But as a central bank, as an authority, as a regulator, I would think that this is the point where they're making phone calls, having meetings, following up, trying yeah. to find out exactly what is going on. Because we just had something very serious. We're talking about the ECB and Jeff 
Where did the global financial crisis begin? It began across the street from Frankfurt in Paris. So it was right in their doorstep where all this began on August 9th, 2007. And you were giving an example. You're saying that I'm sitting in my lair here in the Cayman Islands and maybe you've never actually met me. And that's somewhat made up. Not, not the lair part. That part is true, but the, that, we have, that we hadn't met before. But a real life example was a great one you just had with George Gammon. Remember, I, for the audience who's uh, not listening to two podcasts simultaneously, after this one, listen to the George Gammon appearance Jeff just had yesterday or the day before. It was great. George talked about he had just sold off his business. He's successful. He's got connections. He's very tall. He's dapper. And he goes into the bank and they scoffed at him and they told him, get out of here. We're not giving you any money. And it was a great discussion about free money, but not for everybody. Free money just for those people that probably don't need it. But this is one of the key, key elements, key lessons of our entire two-year run, Jeff, I believe. This idea of it's not what you don't see. The rates that are offered, who are they offered to, and thinking about who is not being offered any money to get a sense of how tight monetary policy is out there. Okay. Yeah, Emil, I think that's that it goes to it's it's understandable that there's a shortcoming in the way that we do these things. And by these things I mean how do we measure markets? Because we assume that markets are going to be by and large for the vast majority of their operation operating under normal tolerances. And so we construct measures, we construct data, we do all these things under those tolerances. But there are times when market conditions go outside of those tolerances and we never really stop and think, well, can we even measure what's going on in these chaotic markets? Because we've never set up systems to monitor those kinds of conditions. And so we're outside of the normal operating paradigm, which means we need to, we need to extract ourselves from the normal operating paradigm mindset and start looking at some of these things as if they could be things that they would not otherwise be at all. And so you look at a low Eonia or a low federal funds rate. I remember doing this at the time, contemporarily. I'm like, Jesus, this federal funds rate is falling lower and lower and lower. This is really, really bad. And talking to some other people in the industry, like, what are you talking about? This is great. The Fed's doing its job. It's, it's tremendous. There's, there's too much money out there. And I'm thinking, they just failed. How can there be too much money? Markets are chaotic. And yes, we had that spring of 2008 period where it seemed like spring had sprung and everything looked fine. And the ECB, it wasn't just the, the Fed started to become constructively optimistic. The ECB was overly optimistic. In fact, they were convinced inflation was about to break out. So they were allowing themselves to be fooled and lulled into this false sense of confidence because they could not possibly think or could not possibly accept the, the, the fact that we, the entire global system, hadn't just gone way out of tolerance, hadn't just gone out of tolerance, it went way the hell out of tolerance in a way that we hadn't seen since the early 1930s. Nobody could conceive of that, even though everywhere you looked, things were just off. And if you look at these things, as you said, Emil, if you look at them in isolation, one thing at a time, you can rationalize everything away. You can say, okay, federal funds rate below target, that's, you know, whatever. There's something there. Oh, the German bond market is doing something else. Okay, we can look at that in isolation and say, no big deal. Let's talk about that German bond market. That's the next segue, right? Earlier, you gave an example. You said that 
we have a long relationship, I'm in my lair, but we've had an unsecured lending arrangement. Bear Stearns go under, goes under, you hear from your risk manager, now I have to put up collateral to borrow from you, Jeff. And now let's say starting from January to June 2008. So in January, I would be, I would be summering in Liechtenstein, but in the winter, I would be <laughs> in Malta. So you call me to my lair in Malta and you tell me I've got to now put up collateral. I'm in Europe. This is an ECB story. So where do I turn to for collateral short-term government debt from Germany? And how does it compare to the MRO? And was it another signal, monetary signal, that the ECB just had fetters on and just somehow didn't see? What happened? Yeah, just like U.S. Treasuries. Remember, Treasury bill rates fell below, well, fell well below federal funds, federal funds targets, all that stuff. Short-term German, yeah, because when I call you in Malta or well, Lichtenstein, wherever you are, I'm going to say, yeah, depending Thank on you. the season, I'm going to know your number. Either way, I'm going to send you a message and say, Emil, I need collateral, but I don't want your collection of 1980s movies. That's not going to be good enough collateral. Those junk bonds, those euro bonds you have, I don't want those either. The Italian debt, uh, maybe I'll take that. But really, if you've got them, I'm going to give you the best terms on German two years. I, I can't I can't I can't expect you to get German bills because there just aren't any. So well, I'll at least be reasonable and say, OK, I'll accept German two years from you. But I'm also not just calling you. I'm calling your cousin, your brother and everybody else in the business and saying, I don't want your junk debt either. We're not going to do unsecured business. I'm only doing unsecured business with the biggest of the biggest of the best of the best. Um, so if you want to if you want my cash, you're going to have to put up some German twos. And what you see is, like you see in treasury bills or any other collateral, high quality collateral asset, the prices of those things skyrocket, which paradoxically to the conventional viewpoint makes it look like things are going well because the interest rate falls precipitously on short-term instruments, long-term instruments too, but primarily short-term instruments, which leads to this confusion. And if you look at short-term rates falling and thinking, well, that's just that's just the bond market signaling that rates are going to come down because central banks are going to be accommodative. And when it's exactly the opposite thing. So if you look at these things in isolation, you can lull yourself into believing that they mean something that they actually don't. And when you see prices of collateral go through the roof, that's kind of a message that we're getting to the end of the line here because, okay, uh, repo and collateral is sort of the backstop of unsecured. There really isn't a backstop after repo. If you can't, if you don't have collateral and you can't borrow in repo markets or in deriv derivative markets, if we're talking about cross-border exchange, then you really don't have money alternatives beyond that. Certainly not a central bank. So short-term rates starting to fall unsecured, that's not a good sign. Short-term rates and collateral starting to fall, that's kind of really getting into other problems. There's another great quote here by European Central Banker explaining why they're doing what they're doing. I'm not going to read it. Ladies and gentlemen, you can go again to Real Clear Markets. A European rate hike is the global economy's kiss of death, July 21st. I am going to read a quote here by Jeff Snyder, though. Quote, when the ECB said inflation was the biggest risk in July 2008, that claim was based on oil prices and unemployment rates not actual monetary conditions, a massive, unforgivable mistake. And Jeff, 
everyone can make a mistake. They can miss the biggest event in 80 years, the biggest monetary event in 80 years. That's why they were given another chance, Jeff. The second biggest monetary event in 80 years happened just three years later. Now, did they do anything different, Jeff? Yes, they did. This time they hiked, they hiked their rates twice. They started in April of 2011, and then the second one in July. So there was the second second rate hike for the second time in July 2011 that did prove to be the second kiss of death because immediately uh, bond yield. And I think that's another point you want to make here too is that in 2008, believe it or not, the top in, in German bond yields is the day of the announcement. We have not seen rates that high ever since that point. The day the German, the ERCB announced the rate hike in July 2008 was the top in those yields. The very next day, interest rates in Germany, as long as well as around the rest of the world, plummeted. Despite the fact the ECB was saying inflation, rate hikes, all this stuff, the market was saying, "Whoa, this is this is a little too crisisy." Now, for when us. we discuss the fifth euro dollar crisis, we are going to be forever telling people that the red flag, the neon lights were blinking in December when the euro dollar curve inverted, when in, in March, when the US Treasury curve inverted. So we had lots of warning. When we talk about the second euro dollar crisis, I think we could say that in 2010, there were things that were taking place that would raise our left eyebrow and make a shift from seat to seat. And we were uncomfortable with the recovery. But by April 2011, Signs, concern, warnings. So it wasn't like July 2011, it came out of nowhere, right, Jeff? It was again monetary warnings, and they had months to look at them. They ignored them. And, Jeff, I guess the point is here we are again, 2022. Anything new in July? Yeah, yeah, they did it again. And not only did they do it again, do it again, the market did it again. So the day the UCB announced their, their not, not 25, 50 basis points, they're aggressive. You know, I apologize to Christine Lagarde. I retract that apology because obviously the politics have gotten to her. She became ultra hawkish, ultra aggressive, double rate hike a couple, what was it, uh, about 10 days ago. And then the, just like 2008, the very next day, bond yields, I mean, plummeted. And today, as of trading today with the technical recession in the U.S. now firmly established, German yields are almost the 28th of July. I'm sorry, the 28th of July for our audience who's wondering when we're talking about. Yes. Go right ahead. 28th of July. Today. German yields are almost certain the ECB is yet again one and done. Um, the German twos are down around 20 some odd basis points. The five years at 50, which is where the MRO is today. The MRO is at 50. The German five year yield is almost exactly to where the MRO is currently, let alone any future break rate hikes. And the 10 year is falling fast as well. So the German market, just like 2008, just like 2011, and it's not just a German market, we're using that because it's easy to understand, it's really the entire marketplace, is saying to the Fed as well as the ECB, you're all wrong about how you view, not just about inflation and risk, but how you even determine whether, whether or not these things are real or whether or not that's going to happen in the future. Monetary policy isn't wrong about 
what it's doing, it's wrong about everything from the ground up. And the markets are telling the public that the, the, exactly what's going on, that for the third straight time, it, it very likely the ECB rate hike is the kiss of death for the global economy. Nobody rings a bell at the top quite like the ECB does. Thank you, Jeff. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>